Well, I want to uh, thank the choir and all the musicians for leading us this morning in, uh, in worship. It is uh, go time or nearly that. Uh, as David mentioned, Labor Day is behind us. There's a sense that the summer is wrapping up and we're looking at the fall and a little, little hint of that in the air. The leaves have started to fall on the trail I run on back in the open lands. Uh, I guess it's time to face reality. Uh, we are headed into a new season. And I'm excited about that. I sense a little bit of uh, momentum to that end. And uh, I'm excited to, to sort of see the launch happen next week for this uh, big fall series. Now, over the course of the last month, I have been making some, um, some big uh, claims and some big asks. And some of that sort of was crystallized last week as I, I set four points in front of you. Number one, change is possible, right? Improvement is an option. We can become more of who we were created to be, more of who we want to be, more of who God desires for us to be. It's not easy. Consequently, it's a bit uncommon. Many people are unwilling to do the things that need to be done so that we are positioned to be transformed by the grace of God. But a better version of you is out there if you decide to head in that direction. As a matter of fact, it's expected of you. Those who are following Christ are expected to get better. The second point is that this requires some clarity about who we are, and some vision about who we're expected to be. And many people lack both. There's a lot of denial out there when it comes to who we are. Right? A lot of people don't have a very accurate perception of themselves. And it's not just that many people think too highly of themselves. Many people think quite poorly of themselves. The problem is that most of us think too often of ourselves. As opposed to having a God orientation, everything revolves around us. And we cannot really understand who we are when everything is revolving around us. Because, in fact, everything doesn't revolve around us. The other thing that we need in order to get better is some vision about what better looks like. There's lots of ideas out there. Better looking, better grades, better bottom line, better sales reports, better athletic performance. There's, there's a whole lot of betters out there. We need some clarity about what better is better. And it turns out that Jesus here is both our example and our teacher and that what we're after is really a change in our heart. It's about behavior, but only secondarily, right? What we're ultimately after is a transformation of our heart. And Jesus sets that out for us. He is our leader, and the first job of a leader is to define reality. And Jesus defines reality for us and shows us what is supposed to happen. And that led to the, to the fourth point that I made, and that is that the, that the transformation that we're after is the result of a partnership that we enter into with God. And that led me to put uh, a couple graphs up on, uh, on the board. And the, this first one, which is up there again, it is designed to make the distinction between our justification and our sanctification. Between coming to faith in Christ 
and growing in Christ-likeness. Between being adopted into the family of God, saved, born again, forgiven of our sins, renewed, reconciled, all of these things that are captured by this theological term justification, which is a one-time event that happens at a moment in time when that 2 Corinthians 5 great exchange takes place, our sins are transferred to Christ, his righteousness is transferred to us. That is our justification. Our sanctification, which is what we're focused on, is an ongoing process. It is fueled by God and his grace. We cannot do it on our own. We are too profoundly broken. In fact, as I pointed out last week, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't engineer this, but we are expected to participate in this. And so there's a number of of, of calls that we're given. We're to press on towards the goal for the prize. We're to work out our salvation. We're to discipline ourselves for godliness. This is all around this process of our spiritual transformation. And uh, then I I put up this other um, chart. I described this chart, which basically says we are where we are today. You, You are where you are in terms of your own spiritual formation because of all these forces that are pushing on you, all of these decisions that you have made. And some of these things are, are pushing us backwards, and some of these things are actually pushing us forward. And, and I, just in a very simplistic fashion, suggested that the things that are pushing us in the direction we want to go can, can be captured, many of them, by the worship, connect, grow, serve, share that we talk about all the time, by worshiping God we put ourselves in a position to be changed. And uh, additionally, then, then being connected with others is so critical. And why I am encouraging you to get into small groups for this next season and, and sharing our faith is one of the things that can be catalytic to our growth. And that's why I've said, hey, run some risks, right? Take some chances. This is the plan. This is the only plan. The good news is not something people can figure out on their own. They have to be told. And we are the tellers. And so invite some of your friends, host a group, and be on this, this path. And then we have, of course, the, the forces that are pushing against it, uh, pushing against us, that are holding us back, spiritual warfare, our own sin, um, addictions. There, there's a bunch of things that stop people. But I also uh, have, have talked about this in the context of the seven deadly sins which are not the seven worst sins out there, but these seven sins are seen as sort of uh, root causes of all the problems that emerge in our life. And so we're going to enter this series starting next week uh, after an introduction, just taking them one at a time. Pride, anger, lust, gluttony, sloth, greed, envy, and and see how we can begin to try and uh, wrestle some of this a little bit more under control. And then you left last week, um, if you were here, you left with a sunflower. And I was encouraging you to think like a farmer. So there are some things a farmer can do, and there are some things a farmer can't do. A farmer can uh, put the seed in a place where it's likely to grow. Break up the hard ground. Make sure that there's fertilizer and water, that there's enough sunshine. Work hard to keep the weeds down. And if a farmer does that, then it's likely that that seed will germinate. 
The farmer cannot control germination, right? That is beyond, that is beyond a farmer. Photosynthesis, all of that. No, we can't do that. We can't take, and there's a sunflower right there. We can't take a seed and turn it into that, right? God has to show up. That's beyond us. But, but we can handle that seed. We can do what we do. As a farmer, we can, we can think about breaking up the hard ground, making sure there's sunshine and fertilizer and water and keeping the weeds out so that we've got the best chance of that spiritual photosynthesis and germination taking place in our life. Well, that was last week, and I said at the end of last week that we would, we would be thinking a bit today about exactly how this spiritual transformation takes place in our life. And to that end today, I, I want to do something that's a, a little bit risky, but um, so be it. I'm going to give you an equation. Uh, the equation is uh, reductionistic, it is simplistic. It's not very beautiful. It doesn't capture the mystery uh, of what's going on. But it does communicate, I think, some very important points. And so you see it up there. Truth times grace times time divided by sin equals growth. Truth times grace times time equals growth. It's undermined by our sin, but let's just think about the top line today because we've got a lot of time looking at the bottom line coming up. Truth. By truth, I mean reality. What really is. It's, it's the world the way God made it, understands it, sees it. Okay? As I've said, we're a little skewed in our perception of what's going on. Uh, we often do not understand uh, what's important, what works, who we are, where we are. Right? We, don't, we don't understand all of that, but there is an understanding of all of that. And so truth or reality is where this starts. I, as an aside, I had a conversation recently with um, a friend who's also a pastor. And I asked him, so what, you know, what do you have? What do you have today? And he says, well, I'm heading into a meeting with a guy who in the last few months has been fired by his, from his job and kicked out of two country clubs. And now his wife is leaving him and everybody is saying the same thing. Dude, you've got anger issues that are completely out of control. You are a scary guy to be around. You have got to get this under control. And, I almost knew where he was going with this, right? And he doesn't see it at all, right? He doesn't think it's his problem. It's everybody else's problem. He doesn't have issues, Now, most of us are not able to maintain that level of denial. But we're often quite skewed in how we see ourselves. Truth is what's really going on, and we need truth. Now, we could swap out that word truth with the law, by which I mean the, the, the moral code that God has revealed to us in this book. 
It's outlined in the Ten Commandments. It's reiterated by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And then it's sort of summarized by the statement, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That, by the way, is a great understanding of what better looks like. If if you're wondering what better looks like, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor would be a great kind of better to aspire to. Well, God gave us the law. He revealed it to us through Moses on Mount Sinai, and the law has several purposes. The first purpose of the law is to be a guide. It's to help us know how to live. It's to help us understand how things really work. And so the Ten Commandments are there so we understand how God created things to work. The law also serves as a mirror. The law is is something that, that allows us to see how we're doing. If we look at our own life and compare it to the law, by design we are expected to see that we fall short. Okay? Once Jesus comes along and says, you know, you've heard it said, you should not uh, commit murder. I say to you that anyone who gets angry is already guilty of murder. Then you get that, wow, I've been angry. I'm guilty. You, you shall not look on another person. Uh, you should not commit adultery. And Jesus says, you should not look at another person with lust in your heart. You're already guilty of adultery. Once we understand how the law is designed to work, then that is to be a mirror that's held up to us and we go, no, <laughs> I fail. If, if you can remember back to high school, uh, many of you were likely assigned, as I was, to read The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's written by Oscar Wilde, and, and it, somehow this guy is, is, there's a picture painted of him, and the picture now becomes a representation of his soul. And he, as an individual, doesn't age. And none of the, he, he bears none of the effects of the life that he lives, which increasingly becomes vile. But none of that comes back to mar him in any way. But the picture changes. And he keeps the picture in the attic, and only every once in a while will he go up and look at the picture. Well, there's a sense in which the picture of Dorian Gray is the law, Right? This is what's really going on. The law has been given to us to be truth that is objective that we can't deny. Now, the law has another purpose, and that is to curb evil and to sort of allow society to function. But I want to focus in on this idea that the law is there to guide us and to show us that we fall short. Because I, I want you to understand this. The law by itself, right, truth Time's time does not get us where we want to go. There's several sort of secondary equations. And truth, or the law, time's time, does not get us where we want to go. It actually leads to a place of great pain. The law is not able to cure us. It's only able to crush us. The law is not able to help us become who we want to become. It's only able to point out our shortfalls. And and as you know, if you live in an environment that's all truth, 
and no grace, you don't end up in a good spot. You end up angry and dejected and full of shame and bitterness and hostility because you can't be accepted for who you are. And we get this in Scripture. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, and he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. The law has been given to those so that we'll understand we have no ability to brag. We have no ability to feel good about what we've done. Everyone will be silenced and realize that we are in trouble. We are in debt. We have violated God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's what the law does. It's a mirror, and it shows us how we're doing, and we're not doing well. But we need that. It's just that we need something else. We need truth. We also need grace. And grace is the unearned, unconditional love of someone else or of God. Grace is being, being given what we do not deserve. Judgment is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Frederick Buechner, in his book, uh, Wishful Thinking, a Theological ABC, describes grace this way. You can never get it, but only be given grace. There is no way to earn it or deserve it or to bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. Grace is something that is given to us. It's the unmerited, unconditional favor of God. There's a great example of grace that takes place early in Les Miserables. Uh, This is uh, the, the novel by Victor Hugo, which is really about grace and pivots around the question, can a person change? Jean Valjean is the protagonist. The story opens with him being released from prison. He was arrested for stealing a loaf of bread in order to to give to his uh, starving niece. He served 17 years because at some point he broke out and was recaptured. He is getting out at the beginning, and Javert, who represents the law, he's a policeman, says, I'm coming after you because a man like you can never change. You're bad. And, and I will be there to catch you. Well, Jean Valjean is released, and he's traveling around trying to find work, and no one will hire him because he's an ex-con. And it, in a desperate moment, he is welcomed in by a priest who feeds him and allows him to stay with him during the night. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean wakes up and takes the silver that he saw that, that the priest had, and he flees. And he's arrested, and uh, the police bring him back to, um, to face the priest. And we're going to watch a clip of this starting with uh, this scene. Stay there! Monsignor, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Hear the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. 
Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for This scene takes place very early in the movie, very early in the novel, and the question is, who's right? The priest or Javert? Will grace or the law win? And the good news is, grace wins. Right? Grace changes people. The unearned, unconditional acceptance of another person changes everything. It frees us up. To, to have an awareness that somebody knows the worst about you and loves you and accepts you puts you in a position where you can stop lying to yourself about who you are, stop hiding who you are, and be in a position where you can begin to change. Grace changes everything. The challenge with grace is twofold. First of all, very few people experience it. Right? Very few people ever truly get it. Uh, th there's, there's almost, I mean, it's almost a cliche, but many people who can define grace still don't understand grace. They don't, they have not experienced grace. And they're not in that position where they can stop hiding from themselves and hiding from other people. Part of, the, part of the challenge of communicating the gospel is that nobody actually ultimately believes it. It's too good to be true. I can be accepted for who I am. I mean, we, we are, we are hardwired to be religious people. Sort of fact reinstalled with the fall is that we think, yeah, 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 but in the end of the day, I got to earn this somehow. I got to be better. I got to be better for God to love me. I've got to be better to be. So we keep trying. We, it, is, it is very rare that somebody says, I get, I experience, I understand, I really believe that I have graciously and unconditionally been loved by God and by other people. So the first limit we have, the first challenge we face with grace is that Grace uh, is seldom fully embraced and understood. The second challenge with grace is that grace by itself 
without truth is not enough for our sanctification. So this is the next equation. Grace without truth times time equals trouble. And, and we see this hinted at in Scripture. We, we, uh, we run across it, for instance, uh, in Galatians 5, where Paul writes and says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Okay? So you've got freedom, right? You're not earning this. You've got the love of God. But do not use that... To, to just do whatever, right? Because a lot of people, when, when all you hear is, you're accepted, you're accepted, you're accepted. You don't contribute in this in any way, shape, or form. There's unconditional favor. Well, at some point, right, we go, well, I can do anything. Well, I'm going to do anything because it doesn't matter. Paul is writing specifically about that in uh, Romans chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5. You can hear this problem in the background. It says, the law was added so that trespass might increase. This is Romans 5, 20. The law was added so that sin would increase. God gave the law through Moses to the Jewish people so they would understand what the standards were and understand that they were breaking the law and sin increased. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Once you understand the law, then you realize, you know what? I didn't have an 88 on my uh, final exam and just need a three-point curve to get an A. I got a two. I need, a not, I need an 88-point curve to get the grade that I need in this class, right? Grace increases. And we marvel at grace because the, the benevolence, the, the love, the goodness of God to extend that to us, it's, it's shocking. Right? But then some people say, well, if more grace is better, then I should get the lowest score I can get because then grace will abound, right? So that Paul asks this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No, 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 he says, by no means. That's not the plan. Now, you see, I have grace times time equals trouble. Grace without truth. I initially wrote this as grace alone times time equals trouble. And then uh, I realized that the heresy police would be contacted and I would, I would get in trouble. Because one of the great things that we celebrate, um, one, of the, one of the five solas of the Reformation is that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So to write that grace alone equals trouble is not the message I wanted to communicate, but here's what we need to understand. Grace alone is enough for justification. We, we, We are adopted into the family of God on the work of Christ alone. Grace alone through faith alone. We don't add to that. But our sanctification, our transformation, becoming more who we want to be, becoming more like Christ... Grace alone doesn't work. We are expected to be part of this process, and part of what we need is truth. Part of what we need is, an, is the law functioning to help us understand what, what it looks like to be a better person and where we are today. 
Well, the, the third variable, the final one I want to take on today is time. And uh, what we need to understand about time is that um, we need it in order for the process of our transformation to take place, but time alone is not enough. Okay? So time in and of itself only multiplies our present activity. Right? Some people think, as I get older, I will get wiser, I will get nicer, I will get softer, right? Maybe. Maybe not. As you get older, all that has to happen is you get older, right? Some people do not get, ca- get kinder. Some people do not change in any way they want to change. As a matter of fact, if you're on the wrong course, time is not an ally. You will get worse over time. And if you're stuck, then all that happens over time is that you dig an even deeper rut. Time alone is not enough. We need time, but time alone is not enough. There's two um, sort of ancillary equations here. The next one is that uh, desire alone equals nothing. We need to understand that wanting to get better doesn't change us in any way. There are lots of people who truly desire to get better. They want to get over their anger. They want to stop, you know, yelling at their kids. They want to stop being envious. They want to stop looking at porn. Want to stop being depressed. Desire to change who they are. Great desire. Passionate desire. Desire is not enough. Right? Because... Our will is too weak to change us on the inside. What we can do, human activity alone, can can temporarily change our behavior, but it can't change our heart. And changing our heart is something that, again, only God can do. And so we have to understand that, you know, it, it takes truth, and grace, and time for us to become who we can be and should be. Now, we never get there, not this side of the grave. We, we remain flawed uh, until our glorification, which happens after our death. We remain flawed people. And the further towards Christ you, you travel, the more you understand who God is, the more you realize, right, I'm actually further away than I, than I thought I was. Now, there's more to the equation that I put up here. Again, there's sin is the great denominator, and it undercuts what we do. And so we will be starting this series next week and looking at all of that. There's also, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's real problems with this equation. It's not, it, it just doesn't capture uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit who is the agent of change in our life. It does no justice or honor to him. It, it suggests in ways that I, I truly don't want it to suggest, but I think it suggests that this is a lot more about us than I think it is ultimately about God. Um, there, there's a, it, it doesn't even begin to capture the fact that, that the change we're after 
almost never happens if we go directly after the thing we're trying to change. Right? If I go to this guy who's been kicked out of two country clubs and fired from his job and say, hey, buddy, here's an idea. Don't get so angry. Right? Control your anger. Life will work better if you control your anger. That's not going to work. Right? Because that's what's in his heart. All we're seeing is what's going on inside. And controlling your behavior, right? We can do that for a little bit. But it doesn't lead to the kind of transformation we're after. What will change this man? How is it that he will get rid of this anger? He will get rid of this anger if he learns to start putting God at the center of his life. He will get rid of this anger if he starts serving other people. He will get rid of this anger if he starts to, to, to memorize Scripture and to start his day in times of prayer. He'll get rid of this anger if he's doing all these other things and God is then changing him. And he will be surprised when something happens and he doesn't get angry. And he'll realize, wow, I'm not yet who I want to be. But by God's grace, I'm not who I recently was. There is change happening in my life. We can get better. Not perfect, but we can become more like Christ. That's the expectation. That's the promise. He who began a good work in us is not going to give up on us. He's going to continue to mold us. And, and so I want to encourage you that, um, right, jump in, right, run after God, right, uh, understand more of who you are. Face that in all the harsh realities that that brings out. Understand who we're called to be. And, and lean into God in the ways that he is inviting us to step forward through worship in, in, in the context of community where we experience love and grace and truth. Right? Do the things that will position you to be a seed that is planted in rich soil that will grow. A better version of you, a better version of me is available out there. Um, everybody wins when we seek after God and have our hearts changed. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we lie to ourselves first, and so the first thing we realize is that you know the worst about us. You know better than we know ourselves. And yet uh, we are told um, that in Christ your love is perfect for us and that you meet us where we are. I, I pray for those today who uh, can't believe that, don't believe that, haven't experienced that, the, the power of grace in their life. Father, I pray that that, uh, that truth would be driven home. The shocking gift, just like the priest handing the candlesticks to, to Jean Valjean and saying, you should have taken the best. It's all for you, right? So un, completely surprising and undeserved. I pray that um, we will know grace. I pray that we will be agents of grace to others. I pray that we can uh, take steps in Christ-likeness. I pray for the events of the, the next weeks as we uh, gather with friends and, and try and understand ourselves better and understand the things that hold us back a little bit more clearly. 
May we become more like Christ to your glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.